So today, we're going to be talking about God's grace, as you've, I hope, noticed uh, throughout the course of the service, it's been a prominent theme. It is a prominent theme anytime we're talking about the gospel, anytime we gather together, but especially so uh, this morning. Now, something we've heard in our lessons on Sunday nights is the importance of bad news. So, the importance of bad news. It's important that we know and hear the bad news, because without it, the good news isn't any good. Grace is good news, but it's good news for people who've experienced the bad. Grace is an amazing thing. We sang about that this morning. It's something we can only begin to comprehend. But see, that's the the beauty of grace. We can only begin to comprehend it. If we could comprehend all of it, it wouldn't be amazing. If we could comprehend all of it, it wouldn't be wondrous. This grace that God has shown us is amazing because we do not understand it. And the more we understand the bad news, the the problem with our souls, the more wondrous and amazing it becomes. A common definition we use for grace is getting what we don't deserve. We often couple it with mercy, not getting what we do deserve. But to comprehend grace, we must know first what they what someone must know, what they do or don't deserve. This is the bad news. And here's the thing. We are so bad off, we don't even know how bad we are. I appreciate Jeremy's lengthy confession in the midst of the pastoral prayer. It's something we're called to do, to come before God in humility, recognizing the problem within And see, even as we've been following this story of the nation of Israel, we've followed them along through the great rescue out of Egypt by the hand of God. We've seen every step along the way, every step along the way after their rescue, it seems that they just keep showing how ungrateful, impatient, short-tempered, and entitled they are. But even in the midst of this, we see grace. Even still, this is how we see the beauty of God. We see how he's guided the people out of slavery and through the wilderness. He's taken away any opportunity for them to stand on their own work. And that is grace. Removing this independence that we falsely trust in. He's humbled them. He's humbled them even as he provides so richly for them. And he does this so that they might see the bad news. They're all sinful wretches, just like you and me. But God has something wonderful in store. He has something wonderful in store for those who will recognize this grace. He wants them to be emulators 
of this grace. He wants them to be pictures of His holiness. He wants them to be restored to their original intent. He wants them to be a light to a dark world so that the whole world might know the bad news and then see and know the good news. God calls wretched sinners to Himself. He saves them. He makes them new. And He gives them a new identity. He uses them for His glory, which is a return to our original created purpose. And we have to recognize, isn't that grace? In the midst of the brokenness that we see in our own lives and the lives all around us, God wants to create something new He wants to restore things to how they should be. He wants to redeem what was broken by us. And even as He calls us to this new life, part of that grace isn't just the rescue, but part of that grace is the giving of guidance and wisdom. A people who are to be all of those things, a light, a a witness, a holy representation to the world while remaining in the world. They're going to undoubtedly run into some tough situations. Not to mention the brokenness of our own past confusion and love of the darkness and how it, it manages to have a hold on us in ways that are both expected and unexpected. We're going to need some direction. We're going to need some guidance. And this is exactly what God provides. I want to talk about grace this morning because... We're about to work through, over the next three months, some of the most well-known passages of Scripture. We're going to read through this portion of Scripture, and it could easily just pass right over your head, or one in in one ear and out the other. Of course, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments, starting in January. And I know that most of you probably know the Ten Commandments. I would hope there was once a day where it was much more commonly known than it is now. But see, to understand the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, which are the rule and instruction of God for the people of God, we have to understand that the Ten Commandments weren't given as a means to salvation. The Ten Commandments weren't given as some, you have to obey this or else because it's a, a violent, vengeful God. The Ten Commandments are given by a loving God who's redeemed His people to provide instruction for them so that they might fulfill their created purpose. We're going to be reading through chapter 19, which is Israel at Mount Sinai. And I want us to see how Moses... By writing this down for us, recording what went on, he lays the foundation of God's call to obedience. And he does so by showing how God's call to obedience, it is founded in the grace of God's rescue and calling of a people for his own possession. So I'm a, as a way of introducing the text this morning, we're going to read from verses 1 through 8. So I want to ask you just to go ahead and uh, stand with me as we read through the text. Let's read from the word of the Lord. On the third new moon, 
After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You may be seated. I want to pray before we unpack this. Father, you are a gracious God. Lord, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our sin, Lord, you rescue us. You call us, Lord, when we want nothing to do with you. Lord, you show us grace and love, Lord, when we are ungrateful, when we are hateful, when we are spiteful. Lord, you demonstrate mercy. Lord, you embody grace. Lord, as we unpack this text this morning, Lord, I pray you would help us to understand clearly, Lord, your purposes. Lord, how you have worked throughout the history of this world. Lord, the history of your creation to, to demonstrate, Lord, the need for redemption. Lord, to demonstrate, Lord, your righteousness as you call a people to yourself. Lord, I pray we would understand that this morning. And I pray, Lord, we would see, Lord, the glory of the hope and the coming of Christ. That Christmas, Lord, would become even more real, Lord, because it is the coming of the Savior who was promised, the Savior who is necessary. Because, Lord, even as we look at the law, Lord, we know that we have not kept it and cannot keep it perfectly. Lord, as we anticipate the coming of Christ, may we see this giving of the law as grace and as preparation. Lord, may you, Lord, prepare our hearts, Lord, for worship and for the task at hand. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this text is crucial because as we've walked through the book of Exodus, it's divided up into a, a few parts. We see, saw the beginning where we saw the, the rise of Moses and the preparation for Moses to go rescue the people of Israel. Then we see God's actual work of rescuing Israel out of Egypt. We worked through the ten plagues or the twelve signs, depending on how we looked at it. We walk through the Red Sea with the people of Israel, and we now see that we've been in the wilderness for three months. Now think about this. We, 
Think about the time that has transpired between these events. It is three months after Israel has walked out of Egypt. And I don't know if you're like me, but three months can sometimes feel like an eternity and sometimes feel like it just flies by. But for the nation of Israel, this was surely the case. So much had transpired. They'd walked through the Red Sea. They'd seen the mighty acts of God. They'd seen God's provision for them by by healing bitter water, by providing quail for them to have meat, by providing manna for them to have daily bread, to have fresh water out of rocks in the midst of the desert. God has rescued this people. And we see in the book of Exodus, it's not just about the exodus out of Egypt, but it's about the fulfillment of God's promise that he had made long ago. It's the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham hundreds of years beforehand. So after God has rescued the people of Israel, he's going to prepare them for the task at hand, which is the entrance into the promised land. He's going to do so by establishing a covenant with them. He's going to establish a covenant with the people of God, and we see that God is a covenant-keeping God. I've talked about this word before. I'm not going to go into great detail this morning about the importance of understanding covenant. It is not a contract. It is not an obligation where one person does one thing for the other and they give something. It is uh, a covenant is an agreement between a, a king as the ancient Near East would call a suzerain, and his vassal. Someone who he demonstrates grace to by calling them and providing for them, but they demonstrate allegiance to him through their obedience to his commands. God is going to establish a covenant with this people of Israel. He's going to make them into the nation that they have yet to truly be. They have a common background. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they yet to have a common identity that's really rooted in who they are. And and God is going to establish that by making sure they know their identity is in Him. It is in what He has done for them. Their identity is as the people of God. I want to look at three points this morning. There's three points. I I borrowed this from Alex Alex Motier. uh, Just the three points because he helpfully demonstrates what goes on in these verses. You see, this whole section of verses 1 through 8 is actually a chiasm. We see there's parallels here. And I'm not going to break that down for you, but essentially what that means is as there's points that are repeated and they kind of come to a point and that central point is in verses 4 through 6. The center of God's, God's speech to Moses, what he's done for here is to tell Moses what his intent is for the people of God. So we see it's three months after they've left Egypt. They've set out from, from Rephidim and then they're there in the wilderness of Sinai, and it says they encamped before the mountain. 
The first thing that I want us to see is that we've got to recognize how is salvation by grace? Why does the does God's grace have to be understood before we rightly understand the law? It's this, we must recognize what God has done. God wants to make sure that Israel recognizes what God has done. And even just in this passage alone, it's remarkable to see all that God has done to keep His promises. The first thing is simply this, they are back at Mount Sinai. If you've been following along in Exodus, this is absolutely crucial. Because if we go back to Exodus 3, when Moses meets God at Mount Sinai, Moses says, how will I know that you are truly the Lord, the God, the only one, the Lord of Israel? How will I know? You know how God answers him? So back in Exodus 3, in verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So when Moses introduces chapter 19, which of course he didn't have chapters back then, but when he introduces this point, he's saying, look, God has fulfilled the promises that he's made to me. So now let's look forward to the promises that he made, not to me, just to me, but to the nation of Israel as a whole. It's, a, it's this inner, if he answered this small promise, what else is he going to answer? He's back at Mount Sinai. He's proven to Moses that he is the God who has called him, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only has he fulfilled that promise back to Moses, but in the midst of all that, what has he done? He's freed Israel from Egypt. He's done exactly as he promised to do. And that's the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham. I've fulfilled the promise of Abraham and he's called a people to himself. God has brought them safely to come and serve him. To be a people devoted to Him. Look at all that God has done. If He's fulfilled His promise to Moses, surely they've got reason to hope. If He's fulfilled the promise to Abraham in part already and that He's brought His descendants out of slavery and they're on their way to the promised land, then surely God will fulfill His promise to take them into that land, to give them the land that He promised Abraham so long ago. You kind of have to see this as almost like Russian nesting dolls. You open one, you find another one. You open one, you find another one. And you see, it's more and more, we see God answering all of His promises, but as we see one made whole, we see that promise come together, we know there's something bigger and even better We must recognize what God has done. Because that is the foundation for what God will do. Moses goes up to the mountain. In verse 3 it says, As Israel encamped, Moses went up to God. God is high. He is on the mountain. And the mountain 
represents God's transcendence above mankind. But Moses goes up there to meet with God just as he had met with God before. And he says, you shall say to the house of Jacob, you shall tell the people of Israel. And then he gives Moses a message for the people of God. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He says, you yourselves have seen. You know what I have done. You have seen my power. You have seen my integrity, for I have kept all of my promises to you. I've rescued, I've rescued you, I've called you here. We have to recognize what God has done, for God commands for His people to recognize what He has done. Even when we get into the Ten Commandments, when we start that next, in the beginning of January, we read the first two verses of chapter 20. You know what they say? They say, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God rescues us and then gives us guidance so that we might fulfill his purposes. But before we even can begin to understand God's commands to obey, God's commands of obedience, we have to recognize it's His grace that has made this possible. We see what God has done in verses 5 through 6. We see then what God will do. As you've seen what I did, you see how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. And then in verse 5 he says, now therefore, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want us to see what God will do by looking at these three things that he says Israel will be. We're going to come back to seeing the requirements here in a moment. But God says, you shall be. You shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. You shall be my treasured possession. So, let's look at treasured possession here first. This phrase is the same phrase, a treasured possession. It's the same term used for a king and his personal wealth, his personal uh, vault. So if an ancient Near Eastern king, they would have not just the the nation's uh, finances, the nation's wealth piled up, but they would have their own personal vault of their money. So David, when he says, and he's going to prepare to build the temple, he says, you can take from this, from my personal possessions, gold and silver. This phrase, it has the connotation of of sonship. That we are treasured by God. That the people of Israel are treasured by God. And isn't this the most wonderful reality of all? 
God has called those who were His enemies to be His sons. Though the whole world was against God, He says, I have called you to be my treasured possession. What we're getting back to when we see this is this idea of sonship. God is calling for Israel. He says, I want you to be my sons. Now that should immediately begin to ring some bells for us. Because what we see here is a call back to the divine image of God. Adam, created by God. Genesis 1, he's created and he's called a son of God. He is the divine image bearer, him and Eve of God. Genesis 1, 26-28. So what we see here is this inheriting of this Adamic role, the son of God. And we've seen this passed down because see what has happened. God creates Adam. He is the image and likeness of His Creator. He is the Son of God. He enjoys perfect, right relationship with God. Yet what does Adam do? He sins. And that relationship is severed. The whole world becomes broken. It's filled with violence. It's filled with sin. So God brings about a judgment. But He saves one man and his family. We see Noah. Noah is given the same command to, to be fruitful and to multiply, to take dominion over the earth, to represent God as his image bearer, and that doesn't work either. We read in Genesis 9 through 11, we see the nations rise up against God and rebellion against God, and God has to scatter them across the face of the earth. And it seems as if there's no hope. Once again, for there to be an image bearer, for God's, God's accurate reflection to exist among mankind. But then God calls another man, a man by the name of Abram. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He, he brings him to Haran and he says, you shall be my person, my man, my representative. I'm going to send you to a land that I've prepared for you. Raises up Abram, and we see a, a covenant established with Abram that Abram will bear sons, and Abram will be a blessing through his descendants to the entire world. But God tells him it's not going to happen while you're alive. And that's the, the foundation of the covenant that we just saw fulfilled because he told Abraham. You won't see it happen, but your descendants will inherit this land that you are living in. Your descendants will come into this land. They will be my people. They will be a blessing to all of the nations, but you won't see it because they're going to be in a foreign land under oppression for 400 years, and then I will call them out. And we see in the text, this is the fulfillment of exactly that. So now Israel, as they're called, and God says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. He's saying, alright, I've now fulfilled my covenant to your father Abraham. I'm preparing for you, and if you will keep this covenant that I'm about to establish with you, you will be my sons. 
my image bearers to the world all around me. We saw this at the beginning of Exodus. God made a promise. It says to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my what? My firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn son. He is the treasured possession. He is, Israel is to be God's representation to the world all around him. Because he says right in the text, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. He says, for all the earth is mine. He says, I've got the entire world, but I've called you to be my treasured possession. I could have picked from anyone, is what he's saying, but I've called you to be my treasured possession. This is a, a gracious gift, God's calling, from a world that has rejected Him. And we saw that from generation after generation. A world that's rejected God, He's now called a people to be His own. That's grace. He says, for all the earth is mine. So we have to ask the question, why is Israel treasured so highly? What makes Israel so special? Thankfully, we have an answer from the pen of Moses himself in Deuteronomy 7. I've got this on the screen. I want us to read Moses' words to the people of Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His, keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay him to his face. You, should there, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you will listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep, you, keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will he inflict on you. But he will lay on them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Why is Israel treasured so highly? Grace is amazing. It's amazing. Grace is amazing, for there was nothing in their worth, nothing in themselves, other than God's promises that He has made. 
grace is amazing. He wanted them to understand that I'm going to call you to obey. I'm going to call you to live this way, but I'm doing this out of grace. As you shall be a kingdom of priests. This is really unpacking this two-fold phrase, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's something we read. We read this in our catechism this morning, did we not? But when we read it in the catechism this morning, it wasn't from Exodus. It was from Peter's letter. For Peter said, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But here we have God telling Moses that the the nation of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. I think the best way I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Peter Gentry, a a wonderful professor of mine. He explained this well. He said, as a kingdom of priests, they will function to make the ways of God known to the nations and also to bring the nations into a right relationship to God. Israel will display to the rest of the world within its covenant community the kind of relationships first to God and then to one another and to the physical world that God intended originally for all of humanity. So we see this and there to be a kingdom of priests, but I want to unpack something even in the midst of this. The, you know, I talk about that Russian nesting doll idea that we see. See, the whole nation is called to be a kingdom of priests. At this point, the Levitical priesthood doesn't exist. Now there are priests that we recognize, men who are taking on the role of sacrifice, of teaching uh, the, the truths of God. We see that, but they don't yet have the Levitical priesthood. We'll unpack that later on as we see the failure of Israel and we see the rising up of the Levites to defend the honor and the truth of God and God honors them by setting them apart. But see, even that is a hint. Not only are they going to need representation within themselves, but even the Levitical priesthood will fail. They're going to need a better priest. But even still, what they've been called to do, see, this is God's purposes revealed there as a kingdom of priests, the treasured possession among all peoples. They're called to be a kingdom that demonstrates how mankind is supposed to interact with God and with one another. This is the great commission of the Old Testament. That the nation of Israel called as nothing, with nothing to their name, are called to be the treasured possession of the one and only Creator so that they might represent to the world the love and truth and grace and holiness of God. They're called to be a kingdom of priests. They're called to be a holy nation. He says to them, if you will indeed obey my voice, my covenant. They're called to be a holy nation for those same reasons to be representations of God's holiness. And we know from 
what Peter says in his letter. I want to read it again. You are a chosen race. And here Peter's talking to the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good work deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now do we not see parallels? I hope they're starting to pop out for you. That God has made a covenant to save a people for himself. He's made a covenant to save the people of Abraham for himself. He's made a covenant with the people of Abraham that they will be the representations of him, his character, his glory, his might in a lost and broken world. And see, this is what God requires. He says to them, Alright, this is what I've called for you to be. I've called for you to be. And he says, if you will indeed. So there's this massive conditional statement that God gives in this center point of the introduction to God giving the book of the law, the book of the covenant. That's really, it runs from Exodus all the way into Deuteronomy. The book of the covenant, God's covenant agreement with the people of Israel. He starts with this massive conditional statement, if you will indeed. But see, here's the point. We might say, alright, so we're required to be holy. What does this mean? How does this fit in with the gospel of grace? If we're required to be holy, how does this fit in with that it's by grace we're saved and not by works? Well, here's the thing. God is speaking to in this instance to the people of Israel concerning the covenant of them entering into the promised land. It's a, it's a covenant within the grand covenant that points to the great truth that God is going to provide a means of salvation. But what he does here is he says, what? Where did he base all of this? He says, look, I've already rescued you from slavery. I've rescued you from bondage. I've already provided rescue for you. Now, if you want to live in this rescue, if you want to live in this new identity that I've already purchased for you, then you must do this. Your obedience will be motivated by grace. But even still, you must obey. God makes this statement for the people of Israel and it's a real covenant that he makes with them. But what we see is that Israel, though the sons of God, the treasured possession that he claims them to be, because of the sin, the bad news, that I hope we've kept in mind this whole time, because of the bad news that there's a problem deep within our hearts. Because of that, 
Israel will go the same way that all the sons of God, all the representatives of God have gone before. Like Abraham, they will not be perfect. Like Noah, they will not be perfect. Like Adam, they will not be perfect. But even still, these rules that he gives are grace. But they're grace in that they show what God intends, which is good, but they're going to show the brokenness of the men who try to follow. See, this obedience will be a reminder to them that they cannot keep their side of the covenant. They can't keep their side of this covenant. They need someone to keep it for them. And this is where this long story of grace begins to shape and take form. They need more than just rescue out of slavery. They need more than just a relocation. Mankind needs a radical change of heart that's only brought about by the supernatural work of God. We too, as we read in Peter's letter, are called. We're called to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, chosen possession of God. But to do so, to experience that, we've got to recognize that we can never shape up. We've got to recognize that God's good law that we're going to unpack is meant to not just, it is meant to guide us, to show us God, what God's will is, but it inevitably, by God's grace, is going to show us that we fall short so that we might see the one who did not fall short. See, God requires obedience. This obedience must be rooted in grace. He already shows a hint of this, that Israel, their covenant will, is founded in the fact that He's already rescued them. Now, oh, obey. But see, we can stand confident for God has already provided rescue for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the, the perfect Son. He's the only begotten Son who has lived perfectly, who has represented God perfectly, so much so that we read in Colossians, he's the the exact image, the exact imprint of the nature of God. We read in John's Gospel that he was the Word, he is the Word that was with God, the Word that is God. And he's the Word of God made flesh. See, that's what we get to celebrate at Christmas, the anticipation. We often don't feel this, you see Israel in the midst of all of this, even after they're given the laws, they get into the land, they recognize the brokenness because the brokenness still is there. It's not been taken care of yet. Because the nation of Israel, they get this covenant, they they agree to it wholeheartedly. We saw that in verse 8. They say, yes, we will do it. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see them worshiping a golden calf. They needed someone to keep 
their side of the covenant. And again, we go back to this Russian nesting doll. If you go back to Abraham, go to Genesis 15, when God made that covenant promise to Abraham, he said, look, this is going to be the requirement of this covenant. Whoever, if you disobey this covenant, your life will be the penalty. But God doesn't let Abraham walk through those dead bodies in that ceremony, but God himself walks through because God had promised already that he would provide the sacrifice himself. See, if Israel knows the covenant promises, they know God's kept his promises, hasn't he? He kept his promise to Moses that they'd come back to Sinai. He kept his promise to Abraham that Israel would come out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he's going to keep his promise to bring them into the promised land. But not only that, he's going to provide a way for them to keep the promise, but not through their own means, but through the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that God has fulfilled his promise. He's provided a Savior. So that our obedience is not rooted in an attempt, a futile attempt to try to earn God's favor because we can't keep the law perfectly ourselves, but we see no, that our obedience is a rightful, worshipful response to someone who has provided salvation from us when we deserved hell and condemnation. We look at that in Deuteronomy. Israel, what was special about Israel? What's special about us? Nothing. Except that God has made a promise and God desires to save and to use every single one of you in this room. What he requires of us is not perfect obedience for we cannot, but humble repentance by recognizing what he's done. What does God require? He requires repentance for it is through repentance and faith through his son who has been the sufficient and perfect sacrifice for us that he promises to give new life. Jesus promised to give water where we would never thirst again. To give bread the bread of life that comes from the Lord, comes from God the Father. He's promised eternal life for all who will believe in Him. For He is going to make hearts new. And He can make your heart new again today. He will make hearts new. The, the lost and broken that are not here today. And it might, you might be recognizing just this morning that you do not know this new life, this new hope. But he offers new life for all who will believe. The ability to obey. The ability to love Him. He changes our desires. He gives us new loves. He changes what we want. And He makes it him. Jesus says in John 4 34 he says my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How do you see how that ties in with the promise God is making to Israel right here? Jesus does what we can't in our flesh. But Jesus, his desires, the food that he says he wants, through his sacrificial work, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it can be our desire too. And it is by that grace that he calls us out of darkness into marvelous light, and we can then be that royal priesthood. holy nation, a chosen possession, shining out into the world around us. God's grace is the foundation for our obedience. For when one realizes what God has done, what he has saved us from, and what he has promised to do, there is nothing greater than following him. There is nothing sweeter than knowing him. My hope and prayer today is that we would know our Savior. We would know our God and the grace and love that He has shown us. I hope and pray that you see God's grace in a new light. And that as we talk about in the weeks to come, the commands that He gives His people, we would see them as gracious commands, loving commands and reasons to trust him even more. Let's pray.